Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to the Grass Talk Radio podcast. The first thing I want to do today is thank the several people who have become Grass Talk Radio supporters. That really means a lot to me, not just in terms of having a little bit of some of those greenbacks in order to foot the bills for this, but it lets me know every, every time I get somebody sign up for that, I say, well, there's somebody out there that thinks there is some value in what I'm doing and nothing will make a person continue doing what they're doing than for them to believe that there is some inherent value in what they're creating. Now I want to I want to go over something briefly for anybody who may have come along and maybe hasn't been with the podcast since the very beginning or you know has jumped around listened to a few episodes. I just want to state my reason for producing this. And this is verbatim word for word at the top of the page if you go to grasstalkradio.com and I know some of you do go over there and have a look at the show notes over there. But right there, when, when I had episode one and two <clears throat> was all I had, I put that page up there and I stated my purpose in, in creating Grass Talk Radio. So I'm going to read it verbatim. It says, and I quote, I produce this audio show to present ideas, motivation, and information to my own website visitors, students, and users of my instructional material without the strict time constraints of videos. Many of the topics are useful for anyone learning to play any style of music, but I'm focused on what I personally know the most about, and that is bluegrass. I've been a student, a performer, and a teacher for four decades, and am sharing my thoughts on things for people who play mandolin, banjo, bass, guitar, rezzo guitar. I should have put etc. I take some side trips, but the show is about learning to play bluegrass and for folks who play it. Dive right in and you're bound to learn some new things and look at things in some different ways. Okay, I wrote that. That's sort of my mission statement, you might say. And it may seem like it's sort of narrow. <laughs> it is narrow if, if I think about in terms of trying to build a listening audience, I, I almost couldn't have picked a smaller um, segment of the world population. People who play bluegrass or people who want to. But if you're here, you're in that group and this is for you. Now, I will freely admit that, as I state in paragraph one of that, that I, I primarily am recording these for people who are using my website, uh, you know, all the free lessons and all that kind of stuff, or using some of my instructional materials because, you know, it's real easy to, well, I shouldn't say it's real easy. L let's say I did a, a video on, you know, how to use the pentatonic scale on the mandolin or something like that. And I did it six years ago. Well, in the, in the, in the time that has passed, people have asked other questions and I've thought of more things and there's just no way to go back and redo those things. So 
I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity to address some of the questions that I get from people and to throw in some additional ideas that I thought of after the thing was in the can, you might say. So it's kind of like bonus material. That was my original idea. Then as I got into this, I realized that there are a whole lot of topics that are just not the kind of thing you can market and sell. You know, you can market something like how to play Cripple Creek, you know, that's something you can package and sell, but you can't, there's no place to market and sell, you know, the story of me getting thrown in a pool at a gig, you know, but, but I do think there's value in that. And if you do, then, you know, welcome to the podcast. If you find that stuff to be just ridiculous and, you know, Hey, it's, it's like, I always, well, imagine this, imagine you walk into a, a bar or restaurant and there's a band playing and maybe they're a bluegrass band and you're really into bluegrass. You're probably going to hang around and listen and, you know, maybe tip them or something, but you might also walk into a place and there's some really great musicians there jamming away on something that is just not really your thing. You might listen to it for a while. You might... I don't know, you know, I'm just not a jazz guy. <laughs> or you might go, that that's that's pretty cool, but, you know, country ain't my thing, or whatever. And at some point, with all due respect to them and, you know, their abilities and talents and all that, it just might not be your thing. And it's okay to get up and walk out. So if you're one of those people that you have happened along and found this podcast and you listen to a little bit and it's not your thing, it is not going to hurt my feelings if you just, you know, hey, move on down the street. Maybe there's something down there more, you know, that suits you better. But for the people, I'm going to stick to my guns and keep this primarily about bluegrass for people who play bluegrass music and want to play bluegrass music or want to improve. And I'm just going to give you my thoughts. And like I say, I don't charge for it. I do accept the, uh, the support with the grass stock radio supporter pack. And I also encourage you to visit my website, bradleylaird.com and enjoy all the free stuff and scope out the materials that I've spent a long time putting all this stuff together. And, you know, there may be something there that could help you. You might be just the person who could just massively benefit from, you know, let's say the Jam Session Survival book. You know, that might, for you, that might be the best five bucks you ever spent. For somebody else, they may not need that. And that's perfectly okay. But it's the stuff's there. Have at it. But I just wanted to clarify in case you weren't around in the original episodes where I said these things, that that's why I'm doing this. And from time to time, I'm, I'm just not going to be made to feel guilty for sometimes describing some of my products and telling people what's, what's in there and how it might help them out. You know, nobody's got a gun to your head, making you listen or buy anything. If you enjoy it, stick around. And I do appreciate getting emails from people and I get quite a few from people. And, and sometimes when you're having a bad day and you're wondering, why am I going to all this trouble? And then I check my email inbox and there's some guy or 
some lady saying, I really just want to say thanks for, you know, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And I go, well, maybe it is worth it. So anyway, enough about that. That's the purpose of the, of the, um, podcast. It's that bonus material that either I thought of later or I thought might help in some way. And now let's get on down to the topic du jour. This episode is going to be about uh, starting a part-time band. And I think it would be a good idea that if you've, if you've been hopping around from episode to episode, that you first listen to episode 13, Field Guide to Bluegrass Jammers, and also episode 30, Bands versus Jams. And I suggest that because this episode, what I'm going to talk about today, kind of follows along in that same vein. Now, I, I don't know if, um, I don't have a television anymore. Got rid of it um, about the time Jackson was born. We decided we would live a TV-free life. And I won't go into that right now, why I think that's such a good idea. But uh, when we were on a little mini vacation down to Tybee Island a few weeks ago, there was a television in there. And at one point, Jackson and Darlene took off to the beach, and I couldn't think of anything else to do, and I flipped the TV on. And I realized that there's a style of television program production that's, I remember it from when I had a television and I, I turned on something like the history channel or something and they, they are really using this formula and you've seen it and it probably annoys you to no end, but it goes like this. You do five minutes of narration and music and they're telling this setting up the story. Okay. Then they go to a commercial. Then they come back and they repeat the first four minutes. It's basically uh, deja vu. Didn't you already tell me this? And then they toss in one additional fact or point and now go to another commercial. And you sit through that and then they come back again and they start over again. And they tell the whole story from the beginning again, quicker. And they use the same scenes another commercial. In other words, they take five minutes of content and stretch it out to 30 minutes. And the reason I'm bringing this up is some people might accuse me of that in this episode, because today I am rewinding a little bit and I'm going to be saying some of the things that I said in bands versus jams. And I'll probably touch on some things I said in field guide to bluegrass jammers. So if, if, if that is what I'm accused of, so be it. But I, I think sometimes it's good to, um, you know, restate things that are kind of important. At, at least it maybe you're listening to this one episode only and you haven't listened to number 13 and number 30. Well, you'll still get the gist of it, you know. And I'm sure that's what those TV producers are doing. They figure, well, a guy might have turned the TV on at 18 minutes past the hour, and he won't know what's going on unless we tell him again. So anyway, I will be doing a little bit of rewinding, so just forewarning you of that. Now, the topic, starting a part-time band. In Jams or Bands versus Jams, episode 30, I discuss the difference between being a jamming musician versus being a band member and the pros and cons of that. 
and why I think bluegrass is a band form and why I think you'll get more out of bluegrass in a band type setting. I made my case there. Okay, and it's basically the reasons why I think a band is a good idea is that, number one, you'll probably, probably, almost surely, make better music with a little bit of preparation, some planning, and rehearsal. I mean, you know, everybody's better if they kind of know what's maybe coming, you know. I'm not, that doesn't mean to say that spontaneity and improvisation do not have their place in the world of bluegrass. They do. And in musical uh, expression. They do. But let's face reality. A lot of people would do a better job of performing if they do a little preparation, planning, and rehearsal. Okay, that's point one. Point two, possibly, and, and I hope this is true, that playing with some better musicians will help you grow. And if you grow, then the whole thing grows. You know? Think about that. That maybe sitting around that same old slow jam week after week is not propelling you to become a better player. And number three, and I, I mentioned this, I think, in uh, number episode 30, having an upcoming public performance, something on the calendar, is, is a good reason to practice individually, to get your act together, <laughs> literally get your act together, and practice as a group. If you don't have that, that, that deadline, that event on the horizon, you may not be motivated. Um, you know, it's like working with a gun to your head. If you know, you know, you got this report and it's got to be turned in at four o'clock on Thursday, you're more likely to work on it than if they say, well, you know, when you get it done, just, you know, give it to me whenever you, you may never get around to it. And number four why band is a good idea. The planned nature of band arrangements, song arrangements, that defines these little specific tasks that you have individually. And, and it also defines things that you do as a group, but it gives you a laundry list, a checklist of things you've got to do, things you need to prepare and get ready to do, which is completely unlike jam sessions, which can be very fickle and ever-changing, you, you never know what might be coming next. You don't know if they're going to ask you to kick it off or somebody else. So why bother working on your kickoff and making, you know, crafting a really good mandolin kickoff or banjo kickoff or whatever? Because you don't know if you'll ever use it. Well, in a band where you, you begin to define pre-planned arrangements, now you know. You know, on, it's not every song, but on this particular song, when we do Sitting on Top of the World, I kick it off, and I kick it off in the key of A, and because you know that, now you can work on that, and you're just more likely to play it better, because you know what's coming. Okay, I talked about most of that stuff in Bands versus Jams, so I'm not going to get into it too deep here. Number five. And, and this I touched on a little bit, but I'm going to expand on it. 
And that is that playing in a band can be a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun when you develop a, a, a tribe, a little group that has an identity. But it's a different kind of fun. Jamming is fun. I've had a lot of fun at jam sessions, and I hope you are too. And I, I'm not pushing the band idea to discourage jamming. I'm just saying that if you want to go a little farther up the ladder, think a band. Okay? Jamming is always a bit self-serving and very non-committal. You know? It just is. And that's okay if in, in your current state of mind, that's what you want to do and that's what you need to do and maybe you can't commit or don't want to commit, you know? That's, that's okay. But there may come a time when you could benefit from a little bit of a commitment to a band operation. Being in a band is definitely more of a commitment. I mean, it, you could just choose to not show up for the jam and people might wonder what happened to you, but the, they're not going to flip out, <laughs> you know. But if you join a band and don't show up, watch what happens, you know. Okay, now I realize that bands aren't for everybody. That's that's totally cool. But maybe later, you know, or you might be in a band now and you just want to kind of get out of that whole thing and just go back to having some fun, going to festivals and jamming. That's totally cool. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just saying I want you to examine yourself and say to yourself, I wonder if I would become a better player and enjoy bluegrass more if I was in a band. Just that's why I'm doing this episode, for you to think about that. Now, I know a lot of uh, really good, what I would call professional-level musicians who just don't like the band thing. I mean, there's some really good musicians that kind of hop around from band to band. They're kind of like solo, you know, flying solo all the time. And maybe they're unwilling to commit to a band. And, and it could be the simple reason that is, let's say you got a really great musician who plays fiddle and banjo and dobro and it, pretty much everything. And if he commits to a band, he may be trying to make his living with this and the commitment to a band and then the band accepts a gig and it prevents him from doing another one or another one or another. So there's these, there is this group of not group. There is this category of people who, you know, succeed better by, being kind of a uh, free agent. So maybe maybe that's you. It, it Usually those are people who have come out of a band situation because they learned all the things that they're able to do in bands. Very rarely would somebody just skip the jamming stage, skip the band stage, and go straight to, you know, world's greatest sideman. That's pretty rare. Anyway, there are those people... And, you know, I just want to acknowledge that they exist. So not everybody can make the commitment. But if you do make a commitment to a group of other musicians and you you have kind of the same mindset about what your goals are for the group, you know, what what the reality is of what you could accomplish. You know, if you got one member who wants to take it on the road and 
play 250 dates a year. And you got another guy who might like to do a couple of festivals, you know, in the spring and a couple in the fall. You might continue for a while, but that group is not going to stay together in that form because those are just conflicting goals. So try to, you know, get on board with some people who kind of want to do the same thing you, you want to do. And I'm going to touch on one more thing that I mentioned in bands versus jams. And that is the big difference that, that comes along with being in a band is that now the audience is the primary motivation for what you're creating. Everything you play as a band, every, every note you, you pick on your instrument and every song you sing is designed for that audience out there sitting in the folding in the lawn chairs or on the hay bales or standing around in the bar or sitting at a restaurant table, you're doing it for them. And that just changes everything. And that's a lot different than doing it for yourself. A lot of times, you know, and this is okay that a beginner will go to a jam and want to play the tunes he's working on to kind of hear it and hear it with some other people and, you know, see how he's doing with it. And that's okay. But that person is not doing the same thing that a, that a stage performance performer is doing where they're putting it out there for the audience. So just want to make sure that I've mentioned all that. And if you want more elaborate breakdown of all that, go back to episode 30. Now, and I'm flipping pages. I actually am working from notes and it's pretty rare here lately that I've, that I'm working from written notes, but there are things here that I do not want to forget to mention. And, uh, item six is bluegrass's band style. I thoroughly, uh, hash that out in bands versus jams, but I'm going to restate it here that despite the prevalence of jam sessions and parking lot picking, which is a huge thing in bluegrass music, in my opinion, the best music is always a band performance. Okay. Now, you may be sitting there saying, or thinking of various objections to why you need to not think about being in a band. You know, objections to being in a band or starting up a band. So let's examine some of those possible objections. Number one you may think that you're not good enough. And that maybe that's true. I mean, if you know three chords on your guitar, you're probably not good enough to start a band or jump into a band. That's fair enough. Well, that should tell you, okay, learn 14 guitar chords and learn how to transpose to other keys by using a capo and learn how to sing some songs. If you, if you basically are a, you know, a, you got three tunes you could pick and you got five songs you like to sing. You got a little bit of work to do before you can go out and play three sets at a, at a Mexican restaurant or something, you know? So that's okay. That may be a valid reason. Maybe you aren't good enough yet. And I should also say by good, I mean not experienced enough because you may be perfectly good at what you're doing, but you may just not know enough different things. Okay, number two, second objection. You may not have enough time. I respect that. I, 
if I were starting a band, I do not want somebody to say yes to the idea who really doesn't have the time to pour into it because you're going to pour a lot of time into a band. There is no way around it. Uh, it just like if you were going to, if you were going to build a mandolin, you're not going to go out and make a mandolin in 30 minutes in your garage. You're going to pour a lot of time into learning how to do it, making a lot of mistakes and working, carving detailed. I mean, if anybody that's ever built a mandolin will understand what I'm talking about. It, it may look easy on paper, but there's a lot of time involved. And the same is true for crafting a band. So be prepared to dedicate some time to it. Now this can be on various scales. You know, if today I got the wild hair and I don't think I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. At least not today of let's say, put it, put together a band and I want it to be, I want it to be good enough to play major bluegrass festivals around the Southeast. And I once did that exact plan. But today I don't have that plan, but let's say I were to do that, then I've got to be willing to dedicate the time it would take to do all that. You know, it's, that's a pretty tall order. It's a less tall order to say, I want to put together a band to play at, you know, little local, um, town, you know, like the peanut festival or the chicken pot pie festival, or, you know, that's not as tall of an order. So it's okay. And that would require less time, investment of less time. So at least consider the time, the amount of time for the goal you envision. So you may be able to whittle out one night a week and that will produce a band of a, of a certain caliber, you know, practicing once a week is huge compared to not practicing as a band at all. You could take the worst bunch of jammers or just disorganized and playing the same old stuff every week and rehearse them once a week. And in let's say eight, 12 weeks, you'd be blown away by how much progress they would, would have made in terms of their performance it's amazing. It doesn't take a lot of time. Now to reach certain levels, there is also that individual investment of time. You know, if you're going to, if you want to be known as a really good banjo player, you're going to have to pour a lot of time in, in the old woodshed. And so some of this is individual and some of this is as a group, but I'm talking here about a band. So be prepared for some dedication in terms of the amount of time you're going to put in and make sure that the other people that you get on board with you have the, you know, have similarly committed to the same amount of input of time. Okay. Third reason you might not, third objection to starting a band might be that, well, let's say you might be good enough or so-and-so might be good enough, but the band would never be good enough to really go out and perform. Well, that, that could be true. I mean, you might get together a bunch of flunkies quote unquote, and, you know, and start working on some stuff and, and it's just not really that good. And you think, well, I, why go to all this trouble? Why, why create a band? If you don't picture in your mind that the band was ever going to amount to anything. 
Well, think about this. How are you ever going to amount to anything if you don't do it? You've seen what happens at the jam session. It just pretty much remains the same. Now, individuals may improve, but the group sound just stays the same. So you got to start somewhere. I, I think a bad, a bad band only leads to a better band and, you know, and it keeps progressing. Okay. Another objection you might hear, and I've heard this kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to call it an excuse, but I've heard this tossed around, you know, by people I see at jam sessions. And that is, well, they're not really interested in making any money. As if the only purpose for a band is to make money, and it clearly is not. In fact, it's probably one of the most foolish ways in the world to think you're going to make some money. You do make money. If you do it right, you can make a little money playing music. No doubt about it. But there are some people that are just don't need the money or don't want to make any money. And that could come from maybe, you know, the guy's set for life, you know, whatever, won the lottery or, you know, salted away a lot of money, made some good investments, whatever. And just doesn't care about that 60 bucks that they might make as a band, you know, 300 bucks split five ways. Just, just doesn't mean anything to them. So that person does not have a, a monetary incentive to be in a band. Well, that's okay. He could just give the money to the other guys. But, you know, if you're not interested in making money, don't let that stop you from being in a band. Because trust me, you're probably not going to make any money. By the time you, you add up, you know, the cost of PAs and travel and instruments. And like I was telling the, the guys the other night, and I've, I've said this a couple of times. Somebody said, why do you always bring that tip bucket with you? I said, well, it's a service to the audience. I provide the tip bucket as a service to the audience because there are those in the audience who would like to give you some money. There's nobody's forcing them to, but if they want to drop a $10 bill in there, who am I to stop them? And besides that, and this is my real point, a set of bass strings for my old K, 200 bucks. And you know what? I'm needing a set. I haven't changed my thinking about seven years. I need, I want a new set of strings, but I'd prefer that the audience pay for the strings, you know, if they don't mind. Now, back when I was a mandolin player and I was buying them in bulk and I could, you know, put a set of strings on for three, three bucks, three fifty. you know, I didn't have that same motivation. So you bass players, I feel your pain. Those strings are expensive and man, do they sound good when you put new ones on there. It is mind blowing. The growl, you suddenly, you forgot what your bass would sound like. And I have been forced to be a, a string boiler over the years. I have boiled my bass strings. I'll talk about that some other time because they are incredibly expensive. Anyway, so there, there are valid reasons to charge for what you do and if you, you know, your objection might be, well, you don't want to make any money. Okay, cool. Get used to that idea because you probably won't make any money. But if you charge, if, if your band is charging something for playing, and in general, I think you should, but I also think if you're going to charge, earn it, you know, earn your money. 
In fact, give them more than what they're paying for. If your band, you know, you start a little band and somebody says, hey, will you do this little backyard party or something? And it's your first paying gig. Well, you're probably not going to say, yeah, we want 1500 bucks. You're probably not going to do that. You're probably going to be like, oh, well, and looking down and kicking at the dirt and going, well, you know, just whatever y'all think is fair, you know. In other words, you're going to be not upselling. You're going to be downselling. In fact, you're going to be trying to give it away for free. And I don't think you should do that. I think you should, you know, at rehearsals, talk about these things and say, okay, when somebody comes up and asks, what do we all think is a fair price for who we are and what we're going to do for them? We're going to come over. We're going to play for two hours. We're going to drag our little small PA and we're going to perform and they're going to feed us. And what is that worth to you guys, you know, and ladies talk about it in advance and have a number and let everybody know what that is. And if it's a hundred bucks, cool. If that does it for y'all, if you know, 20 bucks a piece is sufficient for, for, you know, if everybody agrees, fine, do it. If it's 200 or 300 or 500, you know, or you may go, well, okay, if we travel, if it's within this certain distance, we'll do it. You know, in other words, think about that stuff before the person comes up and asks you. But then when you do charge, give them what, give them their money's worth and more. If somebody pays you $200 for your band, go give them a $1,000 show. Give them the $2,000 show. How about dress nice? You know, I, I like to see the band. I, I like when I walk in a place, I, I know who's in the band because they're not dressed like the audience. They're dressed better than the audience. Now, I know that kind of went out of favor when all the rock oriented bands came in where, you know, but I challenge you to go to a high dollar bluegrass festival with the top names and see some people dress like slobs up there. It does happen. You know, there is a certain category of bluegrass where that is the cool thing to do, you know, but earn your money, but don't be afraid to ask for, for money, but ask a realistic, fair amount. Okay. This is not the bluegrass economics episode that I promised one time. So I'm just going to kind of skip ahead of all that stuff right now and not talk about it other than to say this about, there are a lot of, I don't mean this too negatively. There are a lot of lower rung bands, bands that are just kind of barely bands. They have a name and sometimes their personnel changes and they don't rehearse that much and they play around a local area. And some of those bands do not charge. They just, I don't know whether, sometimes I've heard this, well, we do it because we love the music. Well, you know what the truth might be? And I am one to call a spade a spade sometimes. The truth might be that they know they're not worth any money. It could be that, that deep in their heart of hearts, they know that if they charge, they'd be ripping them people off because they don't practice and they don't play all that well. And they know this, but then they, they rationalize by saying, well, we do it for the love of it. And I'm not against people doing things for the love of it. There are a lot of things I do in my life that I purely do for the love of it. 
And I'm beginning to think that bluegrass is probably one of those things because here I am 45 years later, still just completely eaten up with bluegrass. And okay, then take the amount of money I've earned with it and divide it by the amount of time I've put in it. And I'd say, you know, I don't think I did this for the money. I'm quite sure I didn't, but I'm going to do a bluegrass economics lesson, but just, just consider some of those bands that are just going around, um, you know, playing for free all the time. That's okay. I'm not saying you should not ever accept a freebie. You should, there are times for it, but I, I think that you do a disservice to yourself by saying, well, we play for free. We don't care about money. And because you're doing a couple things. First thing you're doing is creating enemies in your music community. The other bands out there get a little hacked off that, you know, this bunch over here, they either don't need the money or don't, or they're doing it for the love of it or, or whatever. And these other fellows, guys and gals would like to be fairly paid for all the work and time and, you know, so you're not making any friends when you're running around doing those freebies. Maybe you don't care. You know, that's okay. Um, but, but look, if you're starting out and you don't, you're not at the point where you can, with a straight face, say you want $1,500 to do a wedding reception or something. You just, you know that you're not quite on that pay grade yet doesn't mean you can't accept gigs. There are plenty of gigs out there that that the bands who are up in that $1,000, $1,500, $2,000, those bands up there, and, and you, can, you know who they might be in your region. Their gigs, they don't want. They don't want them because they can't afford to do them. So, you know, once you kind of shift over into the semi-pro and then... This is absolutely true once you reach the pro professional stage where semi-pros are supplementing their income by performing. Pros, it is their income. There are, there are certain types of gigs that they just simply can't accept. They cannot accept driving two hours to a pick and barn for free. They can't and very rarely will do the love offering gig or the split the gate bluegrass festival. They just can't not and keep the wheels of that bus turning. So there's stuff that they get asked to do that they don't want to do. And if you're friendly with them and they know you and they know you do want to go do those gigs, they will, as they say, turn you on to those gigs. And I know this because we've done this very thing. When it, it would be very difficult for Cedar Hill to accept a hundred dollar paying gig because you knew that the moment you accepted it, we're committed. We must go. We will go. We're going to show up. And then the next day the phone might ring and here's some, some rich lawyer up in Atlanta going to throw a graduation party for his daughter or something. And he's got his checkbook out and he's no sweat. He's going to, he'd pay a thousand bucks and here you are committed to this hundred dollar gig. So Bands that have kind of moved into that category, they don't want to accept these things. They're willing to just sit home rather than take $100. So if they know somebody, and I can tell you that 
this has happened. Uh, you know what? We, we can't, we're not available or, you know, we, we've got some other potential gigs on that day. And, but there's, there's this other guy call, uh, call old, call Jim. Here's his number. And, you know, maybe they can do it for you. And just saying, if you cultivate those relationships with the bands who are what I'd call working bands, they will give you, you know, send you plenty of, plenty of stuff where you can get out and play and get some experience and, you know, do the love offering gig. Okay. I, you know, this thing is turning into uh, bluegrass economics and I, I didn't intend it to because I'm getting off script. <laughs> but anyway, you know, consider your, your relationship with the other musicians in your area when you're pricing your thing. And, you know, if you guys want to go out and play some freebies to get some experience, hey, that's great. And if you want to get some of those low-paying jobs, just call some of the bands that are out there, you know, doing it on a, on a little bit higher level, the, peop- the bands you don't see playing at the nursing homes. Call them up and say, hey, if you guys get something and you don't want it, you know, throw us a bone. And trust me, they will. Okay, enough about all that. <clears throat> if you decide... You've set aside all those objections to starting a band and you've been convinced by me or someone else that a band is, is the way, the way to play better music and you'll enjoy it more. And now you're spreading it because you're playing it for audiences. If you agree with that philosophy, okay, now you want to start a band. How do you do it? I gave the, sh- the quick and dirty how to start a band in episode 30. But here's a little more detail on the first task is finding some band mates. And I use the word mate intentionally because it's a lot like marriage. As you know, most marriages these days don't last. And that is true for uh, band memberships and, you know, personnel turns over pretty rapidly. But you still have to go into a marriage or a band with the attitude that this is for a lifetime. We are 100% committed to each other and our mutual goals. How do you find those people? Here's the first way. You can try to get in over your head with an established band. In other words, you can try to finagle your way into an existing band. And maybe they're, I'm not going to talk about what quality level they are. Maybe they're touring the world and you have just, you think you could get in there. Well, try to do that. Or maybe they're touring your county and you feel like, you know, you could contribute something. Maybe that's the way. So an existing band, you don't always have to start from scratch. There are people out there looking for other musicians. So maybe you can just jump on that bandwagon, literally, and join an established band. I have done that. I certainly did that with Cedar Hill. They were the most happening bluegrass band around Atlanta in the late 70s, early 80s. They were, and they were better. They were performing better music than anything I had ever done with some of the bands I had scratched together prior to that. And, you know, I, I got the, the nerve up to audition and got in that band and was immediately 
it was sink or swim. And I would say that my, my entertaining ability, musicianship, singing ability, everything just rocketed up over the next year. That first year was amazing. The, the changes that came by getting in over your head. So possibly that's one way to do it. The, the second way is to start a band from scratch. That's a slower process. But it's probably, probably at least for a first-time band effort, that's probably where most people start. And the old jam sessions are the you know good place to begin to find other people that you think might have this same idea of, hey, why not a band? And you may just, let's say you're hanging around some jams, and you find two or three people. That's all it really takes to get something started. It could just be one person. Start, you know, looking around and saying, I wonder what it would be like with that guy and that guy if we sat down and practiced a little bit. They may have be thinking the same thing or they may not be thinking it at all. But if you don't ever talk about it, if you don't ever entertain the idea, you won't know. So I'm not saying you should go in and start cherry picking jam sessions and busting up jams. You know, but anyway, you got to start somewhere. So ask some people, talk to some people. And a good way to do this is just to say, hey, and maybe do this a little bit, you know, privately, not sneaky like, but say, you know, not in front of everybody, but just, you know, stand over on the sidewalk after go, hey, you know, I really like the way you play. I think maybe you ever thought about maybe we try work. Why don't we get together, just three of us, and see if we could sing some trios? Well, that could be really cool. Why don't we try that? Feel them out. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to talk to some people if you're gonna make this happen. There is also the posting of flyers and ads and putting up, you know, a notice at a music store and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And that's another way. And you be creative and figure out how you're gonna find these people. But try to find some people that you just. After you pick with them, you go, me and that guy, we play together. Well, that's an obvious choice. But maybe me and this guy, we're just not seeing eye to eye. Well, that wouldn't be the person. But I, I do caution you about cherry picking a jam session. And then, you know, like showing up at a jam, picking out the couple of people that you want in your band, talking them into starting rehearsing, give it a name, start playing gigs and never go back to that jam. You're going to hurt some feelings. You're going to make some enemies and you don't want to do that. So, you know, don't be too sneaky about it, but also don't walk in and make a public statement like, Hey, I'm starting a band and you, you, not you and you definitely not you. I, I want you to be at my house on Wednesday night and we're going to start a band or y'all, you know, don't do it that way. I don't think you would do that. But the thing is, you, you got to start somewhere. So pick out a couple people, have a little get together, pick a little bit and see what you think. Talk about things. Talk among yourselves about who else you might ask. And well, if I ask that person, will, will that upset so-and-so? I mean, you need to consider these things. Especially if you want to continue running in the same circles with people. But anyway, just, you know, don't be too sneaky about it, but don't let that hold you back either. I mean, if, if, if you want to kind of move to the next level, there's no choice. You're going to have to choose some people, 
but there's no reason you can't continue to attend that jam and come in and support what they're doing and don't come in don't show back up at that jam later just wanting to take over and turn it into your own band thing you know that'll that'll rub some <laughs> rub rub the cat the wrong way you might say just come in and be your old self and do the jam thing anyway to end this episode i just want you to start thinking about the pros and cons of starting some kind of a band. I really think it is the way to get better individually and as a group and to make better music and to do the thing which music is supposed to do. And that is communicate to audiences. You can't do, you can only do it on a very limited basis in jam session settings. And I know that sounds like a rewind back to bands versus jams, but I really truly believe this. In some future episodes, I'm not exactly sure when I'll get around to doing this. I'm going to be hitting on some other topics for you people that do want to, that now is the time you're thinking of maybe doing a band. I'm going to do something on, you know, how to rehearse a band and how to manage your band and, you know, organization of bands and roles and leadership and who the contact person is and rehearsal scheduling and you know, do you need a PA and how do you handle the money? And, you know, how do you write good sets? And what about selling t-shirts and merchandise? And how do you handle all this stuff and naming the band and who owns the band name and all these things. And this is stuff I can talk with a pretty good um, level of experience with because I've been doing those things for a very, very long time. And I, I've seen what works and I've seen what didn't work so well. I'm not saying I know everything, but you know, I can, I can talk about those things and perhaps save you the trouble of, you know, trying some things that I don't think work very well. Uh, anyway, that's a uh, 15 episodes that could come down the pike for people that are in bands or want to start a band. But I'm going to cover a lot of other things in the future episodes. Uh, a few a few episodes back, I said that I wanted to start including some full songs from some bands and just feature, you know, some music here, too. And I, I did that with the, uh, I forget which episode it was now. I guess it was Bands versus Jams, where I had the tune from the band City Hotel. Well, I haven't received uh, any other suggestions from from band so maybe you're listening to this and maybe you don't have a tune or something that you want to submit but you know somebody well tell them about it i'd be happy to put it on here i think it's a it's a good way to end the show by getting down to the very thing that we're we're into here and that is bluegrass and to hear a, a good bluegrass tune played at the end of the show i think is a good thing but i need some material so if you know some bands around you know it's a small helping hand, but, uh, you know, I don't know, like being in episode 30, I don't think it's going to rocket city hotel, you know, probably not going to be asked to play Telluride just because they were on the podcast, but it can't hurt either. So if you know some bands, um, talk to them and have them email me and tell me what they got. I am looking for things that are original material or public domain stuff. So I don't have to pay royalties on it. 
Okay, enough about all that. And so in lieu of a song, I found, I was just digging around through the archives, and I found a a cassette tape. And I thought, I am going to just append this, it's about two minutes of audio, to the end of this episode, just because I think it's interesting. And it's it's one of my one of my treasures, you know, you have a, you got this trunk or this box where you throw stuff and it, you know, stuff that means something maybe only to you. Everybody's got that little stuff. Well, this tape for me is, is one of those little treasures that I've carted around for years. And for a long time, I didn't even have a cassette deck to play it on. I finally bought one at Goodwill with the prime motivation of just transferring this tape to digital form. And I've done it. I actually did it a couple of years ago and sent it to some of the guys in the band. But what am I talking about? I'm talking about back in 1984, our band Cedar Hill. And that's the band I told you that I jumped in way over my head. Cedar Hill was playing a good bit in those days. And I won't give you the whole history of Cedar Hill. It would take a thousand episodes to go through all that. And it would bore you to tears. But I got in Cedar Hill and almost immediately they were contemplating a second album. And in those days, by album, I mean a 33 and a third speed record album, a vinyl record. They'd already done one in 82 and they were, they want to do another one. So we're working on this album. And at that time we were getting these gigs. We were getting a lot of opening act gigs in Atlanta for bands like the Earl Scruggs review, um, bands outside of bluegrass too. Like I remember opening for the Ozark mountain daredevils and we, we opened for new grass revival. We opened for Tony Rice and one of the, one of the acts that we opened for on a number of occasions was opening for doc Watson. You know, a friend of ours was a friend of his and that kind of made that thing happen for quite a few years. We did that. I don't know how many times, probably, I don't know, eight or 10 times we were the opening act for Doc Watson. So we kind of got to know it. Well, as that album was coming together, we thought, Hey, we'll ask Doc to listen to the, listen to the master and write the liner notes and see if he would do that. And so we, we sent it up to him. We were, had rough mixes of, I think 10 out of the 12 songs done. And we sent him a tape and just asked him if he would do this. And he said, yes, it was amazing. However, because of his, uh, vision limitations, he was unable to actually write the liner notes physically, you know, like type them on a typewriter or something. So he made an audio recording. He just got out his cassette recorder, listened to the album and then recorded his comments, which I then transcribed and typed them up and gave them to the printers and the person who designed the, the jacket. That's how he did it. So here it is for your, um, really just, it's just interesting because you could look at the album and read what he wrote, what he said, but not many people have had the chance to actually hear him say it. So I'm just going to end this episode with this little treasure it means a lot to me, and it'll hopefully be interesting to you. Here is Doc Watson's recording of the liner notes for Cedar Hill's album, Mama Don't Allow, 
from 1984 and enjoy it and I'll talk to you in the next podcast. On this album by Cedar Hill, their talents are very ably applied to a lot of different kinds of songs. For instance, the comedy uh, done Daffy Duck style alone. How the good old song that the Oak Ridge Boys done called Elvira are the Simon Crum type comedy. I don't know if, how many of you know who Simon Crum was. He was a, a character invented by Ferlin Husky in the 50s who did some fine comedy records. The song about the one, the song they do on this album about uh, You Stomped on My Heart, I think, expresses some of Simon Crum's notions. I don't know who wrote the song, but I'm sure whoever finishes the liner notes on this album will know. Uh, you boys do a fine job on that. And then there's the serious application of bluegrass to a, a lot of different kinds of songs. Mama Don't Lie, for instance, shows Cedar Hill's knowledge of harmonies and music ranging from just good old stomp down bluegrass all the way over to the Beach Boys. Andrew's sisters, people in the big bands and pop music sounds and the good old down-to-earth bluegrass uh, songs like that version of Don't Let Your Deal Go Down. A great album, in my opinion, boys. I appreciate and take as a compliment whatever influence my music has had on the good sounds you're getting here. Keep up the good work.